Many animals were harmed in the making of this book, and broomsticks, and children. You're listening to The Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for people who read the fine print. This is our last chance, my last chance, to win the Quidditch Cup. Gryffindor hasn't won for seven years now. Okay, so we've had the worst luck in the world, but we also know we've got the best ruddy team in the school. We've got three superb chasers. We've got two unbeatable beaters. And we've got a seeker who has never failed to win us a match. And me. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Welcome to The Quibbler, episode 18. We are reading Flight of the Fat Lady and Grim Defeat in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Is that how you say it? Azkaban. 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 Alakazam. Azkaban. Azkaban. Azkaban, I think, is how it's pronounced, (laughs) actually. Azkaban. Just Azkaban. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. That's the porn version. Ew. I don't know. What would an Azkaban even be? I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) 11 years in Azkaban. (laughs) Guys, we're trying a new... Um, schedule, so it's really late at night on a Wednesday, so we might be kind of loopy, but we're going to see how this goes. I did my waiting. In Ass Cabin. <laughs> I just wanted to say that again. Who is that? Serious. Does he say that at the end? Yeah, doesn't he? Well, he says it something. Yeah, he's like, I did my waiting. Oh, he does. Okay. I did my waiting. You just, you sound like you're doing your Samwise Gamgee voice. I don't have any voice. I'm really bad at voices, guys. Yeah. You don't sound be, like serious. Samwise Gamgee would be like, don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. That's exactly what Samwise sounded like. Okay. Um, we're going to have spoilers. We're going to have cursing. We're going to have adult themes. The adult themes this week are paperwork, amateur pharmacy, co-ed sleepovers, cat fights, and getting distracted by a dog, which is an experience near and dear to all of our hearts. Uh, what happened in these chapters? Sorry, I was looking at a dog. Um, <laughs> I wish. In my mind's eye, I was. This week, Quidditch season resumes at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Oliver Wood is being extremely manic But he has the perfect plan to finally win the Quidditch World Cup. It's his seventh year. It's not the World Cup. Oh, well. It's just the School Cup. In Oliver's mind, it may as well be the Quidditch World Cup. That's true. Lavender Brown's rabbit dies, as Professor Trelawney may or may not have predicted. The rest of the school gets to visit Hogsmeade, except for Harry, who didn't sign a form and has to stay back despite his protestations to Professor McGonagall, who's a stickler for the rules unless it comes to Quidditch. While the rest of the school is off pounding sweets and visiting the Shrieking Shack, Harry has a heart-to-heart with Professor Lupin. Harry learns that Professor Lupin didn't keep him from facing the Boggart because he thought he couldn't handle it, but because he thought Lord Voldemort would materialize and send everyone into a straight-up panic. So... That's reassuring for Harry. Snape brings Professor Lupin a smoking goblet of something, which gets the wheels turning in Harry's mind. The rest of the school returns for the Halloween feast, which features some crazy ghost entertainments and live bats and other sweet Halloween shit. And then as they're heading back up to the dormitory, ba 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 the motherfucking fat lady has pieced out and her painting is all scratched up because apparently Sirius Black tried to get in, according to Peeves, the poltergeist, who is like the Draco Malfoy of ghosts, but worse. No, not really. He's better than Malfoy. I don't know. So, you know, Peeves is just uh, peeving everybody off because that's what characters do in these books. They act like their names. The students spend the night in the Great Hall while the professors search the castle for Sirius Black. While everyone is sleeping in their sweet purple sleeping bags, Harry overhears Professor Snape talking with Dumbledore, asking if he has any idea 
how Sirius Black got into the castle. Snape darkly suggests that it was an inside job. Harry later finds out from Professor McGonagall that Sirius Black is out to get him, and Harry is like, uh, duh, I know. That's, like, literally always what happens to me. (laughs) And I overheard it from Mr. Weasley. Snape fills in for Professor Lupin, who is out sick from class mysteriously, and gives everyone a very horrible lesson about werewolves. Sir Cadogan replaces the fat lady and pulls guard duty while Professor Dumbledore can get Filch to restore her painting. So there's a very rainy Quidditch match against Hufflepuff. In the course of the game, Harry sees the Grim, the black spectral dog. Well, it's just a dog. I don't, it's not spectral, but he's like, oh shit, there's a straight up death omen watching me play sports. Lightning flashes, Harry realizes that the whole bottom of the pitch is filled with Dementors. He hears the screaming voice, faints, and plummets to Earth. Harry wakes up in the hospital wing, as he so often does, to discover that they have A, lost the match, and B, his favorite broom, the Nimbus 2000, has been destroyed by the Whomping Willow. It was blown by a gale into the Whomping Willow, and... He feels the agony of grim defeat, as the chapter is called, and that's where we are this week. So I was thinking, I had a lot of thoughts about little moments, but nothing that really makes for a big 15-minute, 20-minute blowout, like, let's really get into this section. So I was thinking we would, I would just dump everything I've been thinking out into like a big audio pensive. Yeah, So let's um, go into the pensive. Just, yeah, it's the Quibbler pensive. So, um, topic one, dancing ghosts that reenact a beheading. Sick. Sick? Absolutely awesome. I think that's appropriate entertainment for It's Halloween, yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. It's like a horror pageant. I actually think that sounds awesome. I guess there's way worse decorations just uh, walking around neighborhoods on people's, like, uh... Yeah, there's, like, hanging things, which is horrifying. Except Sir Nick is reenacting his own execution. I know, that's baller. All right, what so a cool thing to do. More ghost reappropriation of their own death. And formation gliding, which I can only assume is... Like ghost dancing. Yeah. Which is... Who is organizing this? It's the Fat Friar. The ghost... Yeah, he's just like putting up like... It's I the don't Hufflepuff know. ghost who's like, meet me He's at, putting up flyers in like the ghost common room. Yeah, meet me at midnight or whenever because we dungeons, literally we have to rehearse and we don't have to sleep ever so no that's true i bet the show was really good yeah no i actually i love ghost culture we've we talked about this in the second book <laughs> the fact that sir nicholas gets some like kind of macabre pleasure from the gruesomeness of his death it's like really great all right if he wants to reenact it like that's you get to deal with your own death however the fuck you want man that's up to you two How much writing is two rolls of parchment? So Snape, in his awful, like, substitute teacher from hell moment where he teaches defense against the dark arts, he assigns them two rolls of parchment on werewolves. And I'm thinking a whole row, like a ream of paper is, that's like hundreds of pieces of paper. No, I don't think. I think a roll of parchment is like a couple of feet. Okay. That's still, like, if you're writing that out, yeah, it's an insanely long essay. I think it's meant to be an uh, an outsized assignment. <laughs> Two but rolls Hermione on. routinely writes like four or five rolls of parchment. Like she always writes drastically more than is assigned. Which actually, Hermione, like that doesn't mean that you're smart. That's like, that's, you know, brevity is a particular skill. Right, the famous, oh God, who said, I'm sorry this note is so long. I didn't have time to write it short. That's like a famous aphorism. I don't know. It's probably like I Mark know. Twain. Or yeah, yeah. I'm. Well, you know, we could find out. Hold oh, on. Oh well, no. No. You know no, what? You're right. We just we're just gonna refuse to look it up because you know what? Sometimes you just gotta not know. We're going internet free for this episode because the internet is a horrible place right now. Yeah, it's a garbage fire for <laughs> sure. Okay. All right. Next topic. Quidditch is not postponed for, quote, trifles, unquote, like thunderstorms. So they need a permission slip to visit Hogsmeade, but they can fly kites 
They're not kites, even. They're it's worse humans. than a kite. The human... They put humans in the sky in on, a lightning storm. On wooden sticks. On wooden sticks. In a lightning storm. I guess it's... At least they're not on, like, metal rods, but... Wood is as bad, though. I mean, oh, trees yeah, you're get right. stuck it's by like, lightning. Oh, wow. I, am, I just betrayed my complete lack of knowledge about how... The weather? Yeah, lightning strike works. I know it never strikes twice... Unless you're playing Quidditch, in which case you're probably being struck just multi- dozens just multiple of times. times. I mean, that... Uh, well, related to that, the whole time I was like, you guys are fucking magical and you just use regular ass umbrellas and like just get wet. Like, doesn't it seem like there would be a spell? Like, Hermione does the impervious charm so that Harry's glasses repel water. Do that to your whole bodies. <laughs> like... I just also, why is Hermione the literal only person who seems to have learned any magic at okay, Hogwarts? Maybe that wouldn't be sporting. If maybe everyone some, could do it. Maybe there's not like a whole body charm that would repel water. I don't know. You'd think they could put up like... Regardless, how come Hermione is the only person that knows the fucking impervious charm? Yeah. Like, it seems like Hermione's genuinely the only person who's learned any magic at this school. For as much memorization as involved in being a wizard, you'd think they would receive training on, like, memory palaces or how to improve your recall, since a large part of being a wizard just seems to be associating spells with specific tasks. It's like knowing all the hotkeys on a Mac. I cannot emphasize this enough. Hogwarts involves zero skill building. And... (laughs) Almost zero learning altogether. But I mean, there's like proven ways you can improve your memory right. and associate like word associations. Hogwarts and, uh... teaches you nothing. <laughs> Hot take. You learn nothing at that goddamn school. Unless you're Hermione Granger. And it's only because she just reads extracurricularly constantly. So the next thing I wrote down was LOL squashy sleeping bag fuck fest. <laughs> yeah. People are climbing into each other's sleeping bags in the Great Hall in that scene. I mean, just impromptu co-ed sleepover? The entire school. I mean, maybe not the first and second years, but... Uh, oh, the sixth and seventh years are banging in their sleeping bags. I don't know if they're banging. They're maybe there's some... There's like... I think there's some experimentation some heavy this night, petting. You know? Which is the disgusting term that they used to use in sex ed when I was a kid. <laughs> heavy petting. And then the teachers are like, peace out. Uh, we have to find a murderer, so don't get pregnant. Yeah, Percy and Penelope Clearwater, who we know for a fact are heavy petting, you guys are in charge now. So yeah. don't nobody uh, do nothing wrong. Literally, just don't get pregnant. Is yeah. there wizard birth control? I this is a whole other conversation. <laughs> I I, Hogwarts parents might be more concerned about that than, um, I don't know, unsupervised visits to the candy store. Well, but everybody is substantially more concerned about how likely you are to get murdered there. That's true. Dumbledore's like, Hogwarts is no longer safe. Sex. Again. Sex. (laughs) No longer safe sex. Yeah, Hogwarts is... uh... I have to say something else very small about that scene, though. Dumbledore has such an aesthetic. Yes, he does. Like, squashy purple sleeping bags. It just, he loves purple. He always makes everything, he, like, later on in one of the books, he, I forget in which scene, but he conjures a squashy purple armchair. Like a chintz armchair. He, um, he just, he's got a look that he's into. I like it. He's got, like, decorating sense. Excellent use of the word squashy, also. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. You say squashy pillow all the time. Yeah. Is this probably, you got it? I probably got embedded in my head. After from reading this book. Okay. This book, so, yeah. Next. My favorite pillow we refer to as the squashy pillow. People are learning a lot about our bed in the last two episodes. That's true. Alex has screaming nightmares and a squashy pillow. Yeah. I just, I'm just screaming about ghosts into a squashy pillow all night <laughs> long uh, after I file these, these episodes. Uh, next question. What if you had to make your own medicine? So... Lupin says to Harry, after Snape brings him the steaming mug of, like, hell that he has to drink, Lupin says, it's really lucky for me that Snape's on staff. I'm not very good at brewing my own potions. You can't just buy his medicine from the store. There's no, uh, what if you had to make aspirin whenever you had a headache? Which, I mean, I guess they teach you how to do in chemistry class, but, uh... It seems like... 
Well, you'd have to have the ingredients on hand, first of all, and you'd have to be a fairly talented chemist. (laughs) It's interesting. We've talked before about how there don't seem to be a heck of a lot of jobs in the wizarding world. Yeah. And part of it is because they've just like deprofessionalized all these trades. So they don't seem to have like wizard pharmacists. Yeah, like can you buy medicine? Even in book two, they talk about Madame Pomfrey's pepper up potion. So she has like a proprietary brand of medicine. There's no entrepreneurship. She could patent that, sell it, and become That's another a way in which their medicine or their sort of culture is very medieval because the like the way that doctors, quote unquote doctors, or the way that like physicians used to work is that each one would blend and kind of sell their proprietary medications. Because in I'm reading Middle Middlemarch right now, and one of the big debates that's happening weirdly in the book is that the main doctor, the, the one of the main characters who's a doctor, wants pharmacies and physicians to be separate. And everyone's like, you mean I can't just fucking sell my like smelling salts <laughs> to my patients anymore? Like Dr. Rufus's back Exactly. (laughs) So no, it's a very medieval way of like medicine being sort of like homemade and proprietary. Everyone's like a homeopath. Kind of, yeah. In the but they all have to do it themselves. Like you have to make your own tonics. (laughs) God, you know what? Maybe our healthcare system would be less broken if everybody had the skill to kind of like self heal. That's true. So maybe they've got it right. I don't actually know that their theirs is worse than ours. They're probably not confronting antibiotic resistance no it's true because they're not just like Unless eating antibiotics like candy our super germs can't be healed by magic well we're gonna have to get to magical medicine a lot more later like when we go to st mungo's but right. anyway yeah what if you had to just brew it, your own yeah, it medication would, it would suck if you had to be your own cvs yeah also that's not an economically efficient use of professor lupin's time or Professor Snape's, for that matter, because he's not compensated well, for Well, that's it. why they that's why the Middle Ages way of doing it ended, because like all that <laughs> shit got professionalized as our as our populations grew and as our industry uh, took off. Speaking of wizarding medicine, so when Ron mouths off actually he doesn't really mouth off, he just tells Snape what's what. It's like it's kind of a proud moment for Ron. It is, no. Ron yeah. super stands up for himself in the whole class. Ron's attention is to clean out the bedpans in the hospital wing. How how many people are in the Hogwarts hospital wing at any given time? Apparently enough that there's bedpans to clean out, that they can't leave their bed. Alex, have you read these books? People are ju- people are getting their shit wrecked perpetually at Hogwarts. Yeah, I guess you're. I mean, Harry and Harry the has wing. multiple times had to spend like near like weeks days or weeks Hermione has he been injured enough that he couldn't get up to like relieve himself I don't know Hermione um was a cat for like two months yeah well she just used the litter box then (laughs) I don't know yeah in my imagination it seems like it's not an ICU yeah why do they need bedpans that's a good question finally Peeves can come into your bedroom Peeves the boulder Peeves the boulder guys who I, well, I guess, any of the ghosts could, but the rest of them seem polite enough not to. Well, that just seems like a red line. It, Yeah. I don't know. There's no red lines at Hogwarts. <laughs> Gross. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's the Pensieve. That's a good lightning so round. So we can always dip into those silvery memories whenever we want to relive them. No. <laughs> True. So one of the things that happens is... Poor Lavender's baby bunny dies. Binky. Binky. It's a dumbass name for a rabbit or for an anything. Well, Binky's dead now, so. Okay, well, R.I.P. Binky. You had a stupid name. Binky dies. Binky the rabbit dies. And it's on October 16th. And Professor Trelawney predicted in the last episode that we did that the thing that you've been dreading will happen on October the 16th. So Lavender is like, oh, her prediction came true. And fucking Hermione is out here mansplaining pet death to Lavender. Granger-splaining. The whole class was gathered around Lavender now. Seamus shook his head seriously. Hermione hesitated, then she said, You... you were dreading Binky being killed by a fox? Well, not necessarily by a fox, 
said Lavender, looking up at Hermione with streaming eyes. But I was obviously dreading him dying, wasn't I? Oh, said Hermione. She paused again then. Was Pinky an old rabbit? No, no, sobbed Lavender. He, he was only a baby. Pavati tightened her arm around Lavender's shoulders. But then, why would you dread him dying? said Hermione. Pavati glared at her. Well, look at it logically, said Hermione, turning to the rest of the group. I mean, Binky didn't even die today, did he? Lavender just got the news today. Lavender wailed loudly. She can't have been dreading it because it's come as a real shock. Don't mind Hermione, Lavender, said Ron loudly. She doesn't think other people's pets matter very much. She's such a bitch in this scene. <laughs> yeah, she actually is her. She does. Hard. <laughs> Lavender is clearly distraught. And then Hermione says, well, if you think about this logically. And she's right. Like, she's right. But leave it the fuck alone, Hermione. You're being so rude. Right. So, yeah, more about, I mean, Hermione really in this book it's not her best showing. I think this is her most irritating book. She's 13, though. Yeah, it's true. No, 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 I know. It makes perfect sense. I don't have, it doesn't, it's not a problem for me, but I find Hermione grading in this book. She goes through her, the same phase Harry goes through in, like, Order of the Phoenix. It's true. I'd she's say. in, she's kind of moody and teeny, teenish, teenager-ish so, in this one. You know, she's becoming a young woman. She is, and a very, very snooty one at that. Which, like, go girl, like, be a snoot. But in this particular case, it's she's just rude. Not your finest moment, Hermione. Uh, speaking of youths coming into their own, Percy Weasley gets a lot of responsibility heaped on him in these chapters. Basically, the Osama bin Laden of wizards, like, breaks into the school. I wouldn't make that analogy. I mean, the way the wizarding world is treating it, they're bringing soul-sucking demons uh, onto school property, invading trains to basically torture people until this guy is found. He's the number two. That's true. Fair enough. Okay, so he'd be like... Voldemort as bin Laden. He's like the Al-Qaeda second-in-command who's, like, always getting killed off. Still, like, a bad guy. Yeah, word. Or whatever, you know? So, kind of a tortured analogy. Yeah, anyway. it's a tor- all right. Oh, <laughs> sorry, Freudian. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> That's not actually funny. So sometimes I laugh nervously. If you guys uh, haven't noticed, uh, anyway, the most wanted wizard, like since Voldemort, has infiltrated the school. You know, the school's on lockdown. Kids are probably freaked out, and the professors just peace out to search the school and leave. Percy and Penelope in charge. Yeah, and they're like, uh, I guess just like let us know if Sirius Black shows up there. Right. Like, what's the plan? <laughs> also, what kind of training did the head boy and head girl receive? I don't know. Hopefully. It seems like none. Yeah. Yep. Like, I mean- what is Percy? Sp- like, okay, thought experiment. Sirius Black, the murderer, shows up and only Percy's there. Because the teachers, like, put their little heads in, like, once an hour. Right. What the fuck is Percy going to do? Percy has no power in that situation. I don't know. They said, send a ghost, man, if anything happens. The ghosts can't travel that fast. Like, how are they going to find a teacher? Whatever. No, he gets a, it's too much responsibility and, like, no training. Yeah, yeah. Because nothing is well organized. I think this is an important moment because up until this point, Percy's big-headedness has been kind of funny and annoying but harmless kind of endearing you know and he's polishing his badge or he says oh harry don't worry about uh not being able to go to hogsmeade yeah the sweet shop's really good zonko's is a dangerous place but uh on the whole you're not missing much chap you know he's kind of full of himself but there's just a little moment that's really key i think to percy's development in the next couple books I must go down to the Dementors, said Dumbledore. I said I would inform them when our search was complete. Didn't they want to help, sir? said Percy. Oh, yes, said Dumbledore coldly. But I'm afraid no Dementor will cross the threshold of this castle while I am headmaster. Percy looked slightly abashed. 
Dumbledore left the hall, walking quickly and quietly. Are you reading a bit of him wanting to use the Dementors there, or...? Percy's developing in the direction of harshness and authoritarianism. Right. And that, that, that plays out. I mean, Percy becomes... Instead of just sort of like stuck up and kind of into the rules, Percy begins a very rigid and very status obsessed and very authoritarian adult. Right. So yeah, you. I feel like you can see hints of that. It's like he's not someone who is carefully weighing the pros and cons of using the largest amount of force possible in any given moment. Right. Like yeah. He's like he's like we have them. Why not use them? It's it's funny when he's. Like, trying to separate sleeping bags, but then he says, why don't we bring in the torture demons? Yeah, like, didn't you want to maybe check uh, in with the monsters at the gate if they want to, like, come in and look at these children? And I don't think it's malevolent. I think he just, he buys into... No, I totally agree. strategy a little bit too much. But at some point, like, as we're learning right now... Well, but I mean, at some point, as I think we're learning right now in our muggle world, um, there is no difference between buying the malevolent narrative and being malevolent yourself. You know, I mean, he is too unquestioning of conventional wisdom and authoritarian rule. And um, Dumbledore... Dumbledore rebukes him. And and Percy's a little bit abashed, I think is the word that they use. Mm -hmm. Dumbledore is like... They will never set foot on this campus as long as I'm headmaster. Um, also, fucking false because they appear in literally the next fucking chapter. So Dumbledore <laughs> is useless at his job once again. But the point for this discussion is that Dumbledore says very forcefully, like, we're not going to use the torture demons on children. He does say the threshold of the castle. Technically, it's the Quidditch pitch. So, Okay, my God. He, whatever. Yes, you're right. Fine. Maybe the Dementors are just trying to get a closer look. They're just like sports fans. Yeah, they're like, mm, this seems fun. Uh, no, I think they're drawn to the presence of jubilant human souls. Ugh. <laughs> I mean, that is what they're drawn to. Yeah. When Dumbledore goes to talk to the Dementors, like, what does that meeting look like? Everyone keeps mentioning, like, oh, I gotta go, like, have a chat with the Dementors. Right, can the Dementors talk? That seems like... I don't understand what, like... Yeah, Cornelius to... Fudge is always like, ugh, I gotta go update the fucking Dementors. It's like, I don't understand how someone like Fudge or Dumbledore can comfortably it be in their presence. I, I don't know. I'm just imagining like a really chilly staff meeting, you know, when you're trying to get like two teams together, don't Yo, coordinate very often. been there. <laughs> Fudge is like, all right, so first on the agenda. And the... And the Dementors are just, it's just silent rattling. <laughs> Okay. Sorry, that was probably a horrible noise on the mic. We next, might have to uh, cut it out. Next topic. Yeah. I, I don't know what talking to Dementors looks like. You're right. That's a good question. <laughs> so the reason that everybody is in the Great Hall is because the fat lady portrait has been slashed. And Peeves is the person who reveals the vital information that it was Sirius Black. We need to find her said Dumbledore. Professor McGonagall, please go to Mr. Filch at once and tell him to search every painting in the castle for the fat lady. You'll be lucky, said a cackling voice. It was Peeves, the poltergeist, bobbing over the crowd and looking delighted, as he always did, at the sight of wreckage or worry. What do you mean, Peeves? said Dumbledore calmly, and Peeves's grin faded a little. He didn't dare taunt Dumbledore. Instead, he adopted an oily voice that was no better than his cackle. Ashamed your headship, sir. Doesn't want to be seen. She's a horrible mess. Saw her running through the landscape up on the fourth floor, sir, dodging between the trees, crying something dreadful, he said happily. Poor thing, he added unconvincingly. Did she say who did it? said Dumbledore quietly. Oh, yes, Professor Head said Peeves, with the air of one cradling a large bombshell in his arms. He got very angry when she wouldn't let him in, you see. Peeves flipped over and grinned at Dumbledore from between his own legs. Nasty temper he's got, that serious black. This is this is not important. It just made me laugh out loud. He calls him Professor Head, <laughs> which I just think is a really funny word. But so Peeves a couple times in these chapters is kind of like, 
he's just this little presence that every time J.K. Rowling needs to have a disturbance happen that draws everybody's attention to something, mm-hmm. Peeves is what she uses. I think he's kind of an annoying and clunky part of this plot. Lev Grossman is a notable person who hates Peeves. He's a book reviewer for Time Magazine. He's a fantasy writer himself. He's a really smart guy. He's a Harry Potter fan. But in at least one, and I think multiple of his reviews of these books, he was like, down with Peeves. He's <laughs> so annoying. None. Of, he's not fun. And I agree with him. I actually, I think we could totally replace all of those little plot gyrations that Peeves is in with like some other impetus. I think Peeves totally fucking sucks. Well, he's not in the movies at all. And right, you and you really, don't miss him. You don't, my sister misses him, I think. Although I've misquoted her, I on, have this pod, to tell I've misquoted it, her on the podcast before. If that's so that true, might Annie, not be correct. I have to tell you that you're wrong. Peeves is terrible. Oh, man. No, she's wrong. I think Peeves is really annoying. But not annoying in like, I get how he functions in the plot. I don't like the scenes that he's in and I don't like reading them. Yeah. Well, I guess he is just this kind of Allen wrench or whatever that J.K. Rowling has like take out of her exposition toolkit i guess you could kind of defend him in that you know it adds to the kind of weird character of hogwarts like shit is not as it seems uh stuff right i get why he exists i just don't think that he's a particularly well-made part of this these books well i was actually i was wondering i've been wondering this for a long time and i was thinking is peeves a ghost he's described as a poltergeist he's kind of set apart from the ghosts and uh uh, I kind of wanted to get a little into the background of Peeves a bit. So I, I looked Peeves up on Pottermore to see what Rowling was up to or how she conceived of Peeves. Basically, she says uh, the name is German in origin. It translates as noisy ghost, poltergeist cause disturbances, and a racket, although generally they are unseen. And there's this association in many cultures, Rowling writes, with places where young people and especially teens are living. So she thought it would only be natural that Hogwarts would kind of generate a poltergeist, especially one as extreme as Peeves. You can actually assume human form. So poltergeists are, they're they're not ghosts in that they're not the souls of the dead. Right. They're like energy that transforms into like some kind of, being right and they kind of are generated by like teen angst basically yeah so that makes me like him more so that's interesting so peeves is kind of a man peeves is like this supernatural manifestation of the turbulent personalities of children that makes me wow that makes me like that character a lot more right but okay i guess and, and peeves tends to show up when harry is under a lot of stress yeah, like that's a good he's point. He's being raked over the coals by Filch in Chamber of Secrets, and Sir Nick has Peeves drop the vanishing cabinet to distract Filch. In this book, Harry is really stressed about the Quidditch game, and he wakes up and Peeves is creepily blowing in his ear. Yeah, it's disgusting. All the students are congregating around the ripped up painting, and then Peeves appears and says, "What happened?" That's more interesting than I had ever thought of Peeves as. I guess I hadn't ever thought really hard about what I thought she was trying to do with Peeves. Mm -hmm. He just always, to me, he always seemed like kind of a ham-fisted plot device. But that's that's actually really interesting. And I am going to rethink Peeves scenes now that I know that. So thanks, Pottermore. Yeah. Helpful. Yeah. Deus Ex Peeves. Yeah. I think pretty obviously the most important emotional moment in these chapters is the Harry Lupin Snape encounter um, while everybody is at Hogsmeade and Harry goes into Lupin's office. And um, one of the things that's interesting in that scene is it's actually really reminiscent of scenes that Harry has had with Dumbledore before mm-hmm. where Dumbledore is like, isn't there anything you want to tell me, Harry? And Harry says no and keeps it in. And in this case, uh, he doesn't. He actually has this really cathartic and useful and interesting conversation with Lupin. So 
partly it's interesting to see that Harry's kind of growing up and um, getting a little bit more comfortable in his own skin and therefore I think a little bit more comfortable like expressing doubts or worries or frustrations but also and I think this is a good instinct in Harry I I bet if you asked him he would tell you that he trusts Dumbledore more than anyone in the world but this scene kind of proves that false because he is a lot more trusting of Lupin with his emotions and his sort of inner doubts than he's ever been with Dumbledore and as you all listeners know we think that's a good call Dumbledore is deeply untrustworthy and Lupin is wonderful well Lupin's a little bit closer to earth than Dumbledore But also, like, makes himself much more available emotionally to Harry. Yeah. I think it's a really touching scene between them. And um, I like that Lupin emphasizes to Harry that it's a strength that his fear is experiencing fear. Lupin is really good in this scene at reframing something that Harry was feeling pretty deep shame about as a a character strength which is what a good you know educator but also just what a good mentor to a young person does but on the flip side you have this very 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 interesting fun taut tension between Snape and Lupin so right Lupin really drives Snape to distraction come in called Lupin the door opened and in came Snape He was carrying a goblet which was smoking faintly and stopped at the sight of Harry, his black eyes narrowing. "'Ah, Severus,' said Lupin, smiling. "'Thanks very much. Could you leave it here on the desk for me?' Snape set down the smoking goblet, his eyes wandering between Harry and Lupin. "'I was just showing Harry my grindylow,' said Lupin pleasantly, pointing at the tank. "'Fascinating!' said Snape, without looking at it. You should drink that directly, Lupin. Yes, yes, I will, said Lupin. I made an entire cauldron full, Snape continued, if you need more. I should probably take some again tomorrow. Thanks very much, Severus. Not at all, said Snape, but there was a look in his eye that Harry didn't like. I... It's tough to watch Lupin try to kind of befriend Snape in these chapters because he's very polite and I don't would you say kind is he kind to Snape he calls him Severus uh he just seems to be trying really hard to normalize a relationship that Snape is refusing to have normalized yeah and it's it really is it's it's uncomfortable is a good word for it their exchanges are truly strange mm-hmm. and it is she does a really good job of building this sense that it's more than Snape's general dislike of whoever has that job. You can tell that there's a pretty deep personal animus there. And one thing that's interesting to me is just, I consider Snape a villain. I guess he's maybe technically an anti-hero, but you know, as we discussed last, last episode, I don't think he's particularly redeemable because of his treatment of a lot of just like the ancillary characters in these books. But looking at it from Snape's perspective, Snape believes that Lupin is helping Sirius Black. Like, Snape believes that Lupin remains a friend and ally to Black. And Snape believes that Black is the murderer that he has been in prison for being. So I actually can't blame Snape in these chapters. Like, I think he's, for once, I think he's behaving pretty morally. Because he thinks that Lupin is really, truly a bad egg. I mean, he, you know, even with Quirrell, like, it turns out that he's a bastard but behaving pretty morally. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's more of an anti-hero. I don't know. Snape's really complicated. But if you look at him and Lupin from Snape's perspective, he thinks that Lupin is gaining Harry's trust in order to basically sacrifice him to Black, is my assumption, because Snape knows the whole deal. Right, right. He knows that Black is after Harry Potter. He knows that Lupin and Black are childhood best friends he believes that Lupin is the way that Sirius Black got into the castle trying to thwart Lupin makes a lot of sense for Snape but at the same time he's actually not poisoning him he's like regularly saving his life he's such a fucking weirdo he does these incredibly noble things but they're totally undone because like 
being horrible to people matters. Yeah, he can't he can't get out of his own way. He can't. That, he can't stop just being like a genuinely despicable person. It just in exchanges with people. And so it's like you're so frustrated by him as a character because he's just constantly like he's doing the right thing, but in the in the service of doing the right thing, he's so singularly horrifying to all these kids. That I'm like, ultimately, it doesn't really matter because you're still scarring children. Yeah. Oh, God. He's an, she did such a good job with Snape. Mm-hmm. He's an amazing character. And his, his, he and Lupin's exchanges are just like chilling, kind of. There's also this poignant medical relationship between Snape and Lupin in that Snape is. And we were making fun of this earlier, but you know, Snape is providing a like medical service that Lupin needs to live. That I mean, spoiler alert, he's a werewolf, and this is keeping his wolfishness at bay. And it's not curing him, but it's allowing it to like manage him. And Snape hates Lupin for all these various interpersonal reasons, but he also seems to be prejudiced against him because he's a werewolf so it's really painful to see lupin have to depend on a caregiver who has it in for him and is judging him because of his condition which is also limited as his career opportunities to me lupin is this evocation of the stigma of living with an incurable disease uh, I mean, I'm thinking like HIV, HIV AIDS. I, I don't, I, but I don't want to like lessen that because like that's not like being a werewolf. Well, no, I, I think that's actually a really good analogy. And a, a lot of the things that we've talked about are these, um, these books have evocations of very intense and real and tragic experiences. And I think, yeah, Lupin is somebody who is living with a chronic illness that is both personally difficult to manage and also deeply stigmatizing socially right and snape sort of discussed with him even as snape is the person providing his care seems really true to life in that way and is trying to out him essentially he is yeah that's why he has the werewolf lesson we learn right and then of course when lupin is revealed as a werewolf he has to leave the school because even Dumbledore can't protect him protect at that him point from angry parents who don't want their kids going to school with someone who is cursed. I think HIV is a pretty good analogy um, for Lupin's life, especially when this was written right in the 90s. It's, I would say, much, much, much less that way now. But in the 80s and 90s, I think people living with HIV experienced, and I mean, and I'm sure, I'm I, like, certainly this is still true, but I think culturally, like, we've changed at least a little bit, but Lupin's werewolfness is probably a pretty similar level of stigma. Yeah. And yeah, Snape is a, again, just very very complicated because he's not refusing to aid Lupin but he's also doing all these horrible underhanded things to make Lupin's life harder at least in part because of prejudice about Lupin's condition right but Lupin also has to kind of cultivate and not suck up to Snape. Well, but. he has to take what he can get, mm-hmm. which I think is another experience of chronic illness is that it's hard to be choosy about how your care comes to you. So, for example, like, I think a lot of people living with any kind of illness have to deal with the fact that their doctors, like, lecture them and assume things about how they care for their bodies and, like, what kinds of people they are based on what kinds of diseases they've gotten. That's certainly true for like overweight and obese patients where if you want medical care, you have to accept along with it a lot of stigmatizing from your 
provider. So yeah, no, Lupin has a, a lot of Lupin's experience is really interesting analogy for for illness, for chronic illness, and especially for a stigmatized chronic illness. Right, yeah. Because it's not like cancer. It's much more like something like HIV or severe mental illness. I mean, you know, it's also some, like, it's like schizophrenia, like one of the mental illnesses that people fear. Because even, like, depression and anxiety and to some extent bipolar, people don't think that you're going to, like, go psycho and, like, kill them. But people living with something like schizophrenia have a similar experience where Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, everybody's worried that you're like a serial killer secretly or some shit, which is, you know, bullshit, obviously. But every time there's a, some fucking grumpy ass white dude shoots up a mall, we have to start talking about how all schizophrenic people are dangerous, which certainly is similar to what Lupin experiences as a werewolf. This aspect of Lupin's character is, I think, one of the most compelling things about him. And it's what makes him a deeply poignant, even tragic figure. Lupin's life is tragic. I mean, this whole the, the whole arc of Lupin in this series is very, very sad. His life is more tragic than Snape's. Yeah, because Snape is almost always fucking bringing it on himself. But, and this is all about rolling steam of choices and how we react to our hardships, it's imbued Lupin with this kindness and patience for other people, even Severus Snape. Lupin's life is actually probably also substantially more joyful than Snape's. Yeah. I think his lot is much sadder. Because what is, like, Snape's whole problem is that he just, like, can't get over shit. Like, Snape doesn't have, we can't get into this too much. Well, we will put Snape on blast Again. Oh, yeah. And again and again. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. But. Okay, speaking of the opposite of that, who's your unsung hero? Mine would be the Gryffindor Quidditch team, with the exception of Oliver Wood, who's my anti-unsung hero. Uh, Wood gives this really unhinged speech at the beginning of the year about how this is the year that we're going to win and <laughs> Rowling says there's a note of quiet desperation in his voice. I mean, he's going full on Quidditch Captain Ahab. <laughs> uh, Quidditch Captain Ahab is very funny. In, in, in this season. And, you know, the team, they try to be there for him. Alicia says, we're going to do it this year, Oliver. Fred and George say, you're a spanking good keeper yourself. And, uh. They also show up for Harry and, like, reassure Harry. Yeah, they do. When he's uh, in a really low place, just fucking in the hospital wing, shitting into a bedpan that Ron's going to have to clean up later <laughs> for his detention. <laughs> that's a clean, clean your best friend's <laughs> shit. Yeah, that's, and that, that, that's a deleted scene is, uh, Ew. Any, any, also, anyway, but then... But Oliver Wood does not come to Harry's bedside because he's trying to drown himself, as Fred and George joke, in the shower. He's just taking a long, hot shower to get all his, like, angst out. Yeah. Or whatever he's doing. Whatever he's doing. In there. Um, on the, in that vein, can we just pour one out for the Nimbus 2000? Oh, man. Which meets an unillustrious end. It was a good... Poor broom. It was a good broom. It was a good broom. Swept away. <laughs> now Fuck it's yeah. in the dustbin of history oh my god alex i know i love it all my unsung hero is cedric diggory who's just a really decent guy in this chapter he barely appears but all the girls think he's very sexy which they're correct and um but he seems like a really kind of humble sweet regular dude a and good, a good sport he um he's very sporting he when he realizes that he has caught the snitch seconds after Harry has been driven off of his broom by the presence of the Dementors, he tries to forfeit the game and call a rematch. But it's determined that they won fair and square. And yeah, I don't know. He seems like... That is a true Hufflepuff. Fair play. Yeah, he's fair. He's very fair-minded. And um, also like a hottie, but not haughty, as it were. Amazing how she plants these little details early in the series that amplify some of the tragedies later yeah, on. No. Like, this is such a small moment for Cedric, who becomes a major character 
Some might say the most important character in the series, if you've read fucking, what's the play called? Cursed Child. Yeah. Um, I don't know. He's like a, an axle on which a lot of this series turns. Yeah. But yeah, he just is established in his very first outing in the books as a really decent guy. So also pour one out for Cedric. Let's be real. But also formidable because he defeats Harry. Right. He's the only seeker who ever beats Harry. Fair and square. Mm-hmm. Even Cho doesn't win. Does so, she win? No. No, Cho never beats him. Um, and she's also a formidable foe. So that's it. Yeah. The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio, and they are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Please rate this podcast with five big old stars, if you would. Leave a review, too, if you've got a little bit more time than just the five stars. Because we read them all, and they're really sweet and fun. And also, they help other people find the podcast. Um, the more ratings and reviews we have, the easier it is for people to discover this thing. So that would be wonderful. Also, please subscribe. That's just so this appears, and you don't have to go looking for it every week. This week's episode is brought to you by Dervish and Bangs. For all your magical equipment needs 50 percent dervish 50 percent bangs <laughs> we have a newsletter it's really good it's very funny it's also very informative especially if you are super into owls tinyletter.com slash quibbler podcast also follow us on twitter and on instagram both of those are at quibbler podcast it's a good way to get in touch with us. The other way you can get in touch with us is emailing quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, next week's chapters will be the Marauder's Map and to the Firebolt. So stay tuned and get excited for those ones. Yep. Drop us a line, fill up our pensive, and until we'll next time. talk to you soon. Thanks, amigos. Where is Wood? said Harry, suddenly realizing he wasn't there. Still in the showers, said Fred. We think he's trying to drown himself.